You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Good morning, RCC. It's good to be with you today. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to reiterate the Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Thank you so much for all you do. Um, No one knows you as much as your mom does, and yet no one loves you as much as your mom does. Uh, Thank God for that. So uh, if you're watching with us and you love moms, um, you're thankful for moms, will you comment right now and say, thanks moms uh, in RCC. We love you. Appreciate you. Just give some verbal affirmation to some of the sisters in our church. And uh, as we go through the sermon this morning, I love some response as I preach. Uh, I'd love for you to like. Uh, I know a lot of the guys in my gospel community promised constant loves, like hearts should be popping. So I'm, I'm waiting for those hearts. Uh, come on, bring them. Also, I encourage you to share this post because uh, a lot of depression nowadays, uh, a lot of. Uh, Downness. This is probably my hardest week in quarantine. I don't know if it was for you. Mm-hmm. Kind of hit a new low this week. Uh, it's hard being at home all day. Someone you know on Facebook needs the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I want to encourage you to share this post now. Say, come celebrate the gospel with us. Um, so a great way to easily evangelize in a sense. So yeah, comment, like, share uh, as we go along to get today. And uh, we're picking up in 1 Samuel. We go through the Bible pretty much like every week here at RCC. And uh, last week we did a sermon uh, series within a series. We called it How's Your Hearing? Kind of part two of How's Your Hearing? Uh, And ironically, we found out a lot of you couldn't hear the sermon uh, because there there was no audio mic. So uh, we got you a mic. So hopefully you can hear a little better today. How's your hearing? Hopefully better. And uh, during that sermon, we talked about Samuel, who was hearing God. And uh, God established Samuel as the new prophet uh, over Israel. And uh, we find out here in 1 Samuel 4 through 7 that this guy Samuel inherited kind of a tough position. Israel's not in a great place, not just because of all their sin. But in chapter 4, we find out that Israel is at war with this nation called the Philistines. And we're going to see the Philistines all throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel. The Philistines are the wily coyote to Israel's roadrunner. Like, hey, boom, 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 all the time. Some of your most famous Bible stories, you know, uh, David and Goliath and, and others have to do with the Philistines. So we're going to see them a lot. And uh, though these two nations could not be more different... We find in 1 Samuel 4 through 7 that they actually, Israel and the Philistines, actually have something in common. They're both rebelling against God, just in different ways. The Philistines are the obvious rebels. You know, they're, they're pagans, they worship a myriad of other gods. They're the folks who go to ragers in Vegas. Like, okay, we know they're not really following Jesus right now. Okay, we get it. Uh, they're the person who would say, yeah, I would never go to church. Because if I did, as soon as I walked in, God would strike it with lightning. You know that person? That's kind of like the Philistines here. Just not interested in Yahweh, in God. And you probably know a lot of folks like this in Baltimore City. Uh, if you're here and you would say, that's kind of me, I don't really go to church, I'm just kind of watching online because I got nothing else to do. Welcome, we're glad you're here today. We love having you here. And we're going to have a word for you today. We find, though, that the Philistines aren't the only rebels. We see the Israelites are also rebellious. They just have a more subtle form of rebellion. The, the Israelites are religious. Most of you listen to this are religious, too. You usually go to church. You probably read your Bible every now and then. You probably pray. The Israelites did that, too. The Israelites had a holy reputation. In fact, they're God's people. What we find is that they think they're better than what they actually are. And what we'll see in this text is that the Israelites need a change of heart. Just as much as the Philistines do. You know the guy who's partying in Vegas? 
God says, that guy needs a change of heart. And he looks at the guy sitting in the front row on the pews. And he says, you need a change of heart just as much as that guy does. And the reason is because the Israelites, they're not worshiping God. Really, they're worshiping themselves. And they're using God for what God can give them. So we see two types of rebellion in 1 Samuel 4-7. through We see you can rebel by using God, like the Israelites, or you can rebel by losing God, like the Philistines. And we'll see that both rebels need to take the one gospel path. Now, uh, normally we go verse by verse, kind of zoom in a little bit more. Uh, but when you go through a longer narrative, like First and Second Samuel, sometimes you have to zoom out a little uh, and we move a little more quickly than normal. And that's what we're going to do in chapters four through seven, because uh, these three chapters, four, five, six, four chapters, four, five, six, seven, uh, they're really actually one story uh, tied together around one central element: the Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, if you've seen Indiana Jones, um, the great historical document documentary, um, in Indiana Jones, the Nazis and Hitler try to steal the Ark of the Covenant, this source of unrivaled power that they can use for their war machine. But as soon as they open up the Ark, the Nazis' faces start melting and lightning shoots through them and it does not go well. Well, some of the aspects of that Hollywood story are taken from this narrative in 1 Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant was the most significant relic in Israel's history. In it was the original Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. These were uh, documents, in a sense, made of stone given to God's people by God. And the Ark, it rested in the inner parts of the temple. God was said to dwell there. And in fact, uh, when Samuel heard from God last week, you know, God entered the room and spoke directly to Samuel, that happened right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, obviously, God does not limit himself to a box. Like, the God of the universe isn't, like, hiding this tiny little box, like some genie in a lamp. But the Ark represented the, the presence and the power of God. And it was powerful because it represented God's glory. We find all throughout the Old Testament when people mishandled the Ark of the Covenant, when they, when they were casual with God's Ark, which represented God, God instantly struck people dead because He's too holy to be treated casually. If you've seen um, The Avengers which I think everyone almost has. It's like the most popular movie of all time. Um, to the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant was like Thanos' infinity gauntlet with uh, the five infinity stones. You know that glove he had with all the stones? He can control everything. Uh, the Israelites saw the Ark as incredibly powerful. And kind of like in the Avengers, chapters 4 through 7 is a war back and forth between the Philistines and the Israelites over this Ark. And these events surrounding this ark show us we can rebel by losing God, rebel by using God, uh, and all of us need to take the gospel path. So let's start with number one, rebelling by using God. Let's zoom in on the Israelites in chapter four. And we find the story opens up at this place called Ebenezer. And we'll hear more about Ebenezer later. And at Ebenezer, Israel loses 4,000 men to the Philistines. 4,000 men, that's a pretty significant defeat. So after this loss, the leaders of Israel, they come up with a plan. Okay, this is how we're going to beat these Philistines. This pagan nation that's fighting against us and trying to take our land. Verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the leaders of Israel think, if we can just take this powerful ark, you know, our infinity gauntlet, our, our Thanos glove, and bring it into battle with us, that'll be our lucky charm. That'll be our rabbit's foot. The assumption is if we bring the ark into battle, God will be forced to deliver us and protect his honor. Because God wouldn't let himself get shamed. He wouldn't let his ark lose. Because then God would look like the loser. 
They think if they have God's furniture, they have power over God. Mm. And this is religious extortion. It's saying, God, if I do this, then you've got to do this. They're holding a gun to his head. And this is not just an old thing. Religious people still do this today, all the time. Just perhaps a little bit more subtly. God, if I give my tithe, then you have to give me more back. God, if I take my kids to church, then you've got to make sure they're well behaved. Especially on Mother's Day. These kids better behave. <laughs> God, if I pray this morning, then you owe me a good day. And that's not worshiping God. That's using Him. Using Him as a means to get what you actually want. The Israelites, what they actually wanted was a victory. They wanted their kingdom to expand. And so they tried to use God to get it. Kind of reminds me of uh, that movie Airbud. I know, I'm taking you deep into the 90s. Deep. Gen Z folks, I don't know if you're going to follow me here, but you millennials, you got me. In Airbud, it's a movie about this dog who was a baller. He could play basketball. What happens is there's this main character, this kid who just lost his dad, he's really sad, really lonely, and all of a sudden, this stray dog, Buddy, shows up, and the kid and Buddy click, they click, and the, the, the dog can play basketball. And the kid loves the dog, genuinely. And the kid loves the dog not just because of what the dog can do, but because the dog is just simply incredible. But in, at, at, towards the middle of the movie, in come these bad guys, these clowns, who want to capture Airbud and use Airbud uh, to make money off him for their act. They have an ulterior motive. And my point is that a lot of people today in the church are doing the same thing. They try and use God to get what they want. Instead of like the kid and everybody's like, I just want to be with the dog. They're like the clown and says, how can I take this and get something from it? They don't look at God and find Him holy. They don't look at God and find Him beautiful. They don't wonder at the thought of even being in the presence of God. God is just a means for what they want. And that's not a relationship. I want you for a moment, just think about a song that means a lot to you. Like a song that brought you to tears. Or think about a book that you've read five times. Or consider a view of the oceans and the mountains that when you saw it, it just gave you deep joy that you've never felt before. Just seeing it. When you listen to that song that you love that moved you, you don't listen to it and think, what can I get out of this song? You don't look at a beautiful landscape and say, how can I profit off this remarkable sunset? You just take it in for what it is. You find deep joy and contentment in it, and it simply means a lot to you just because it's beautiful on its own. Mm -hmm. And so it is with God. To an infinite degree. We love Him simply because He's worthy of our whole love. He's that beautiful. And in Psalm 27, David models for us what true worship looks like. He says in Psalm 27, 3 through 4, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, like one thing I want, God, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David in Psalm 27 is in a similar situation as Israelites in 1 Samuel 4. Surrounded by an enemy, about to attack him. But David here doesn't try and manipulate God into saving him. David's supreme priority is what? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Gazing here means not a one-time glimpse. It means a steady, sustained focus on God's beauty. 
David just admires and enjoys God for who he is. And that brings honor to God. And he says this while he's about to be attacked. Like, can you imagine an enemy right there? And David says, God, you know, I see that. There's only one thing I want. You can take everything else. I just want to spend more time with you. I want to dwell with you forever. I want to learn more about you. I want to see the depths of your glory. Tim Keller says that religious people find God useful. Gospel people find God beautiful. Gospel people say, man, I want to give because God is so wonderful. And look how much he has already freely given to me. Gospel people say, man, I want to take my kids to church, not for me, but for them. So they can see the significance of our creator. Gospel people say, Lord, I want to pray and you don't have to give me anything. I just want to spend time with you. I want to gaze at you and speak with you. You're my treasure. Religious people obey God to get God's things. They don't obey God to get God himself. You see, most people think, if you were to ask them, ask them, they think sin is just breaking God's rules. But oftentimes in the Bible, especially in 1 Samuel, sin isn't just breaking rules. It's having the wrong priorities. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior and Lord and Judge. It's seeing God as a means to serve you when you were created to serve Him. And friends, as we consider this point, you know, as I reflect and think about this, maybe this is different for you, but for me, I just feel like David's joy and God's beauty is so rare here in America. Especially in the American church. So much of church that I've seen has been kind of this empty religion we see here in 1 Samuel 4. God, what can you give me? I went to a few churches in Uganda last summer, and I was just amazed at how simple everything was. And how much the people just genuinely loved God. Like these people will come together and sing and clap for hours because to them God's worth it. They were listen, listening to sermons that were two hours long. You think I go long? <laughs> Multiply my sermons by three, sometimes by two, mostly by three. <laughs> they worship in huts. In Africa, with no AC, it's hot. Everyone is sweating. They don't have a conference speaker. They don't have a worship band. They don't have really any technology. Yet everyone's so happy. The entire village is there. Why? Because God's there. They just want to see God. And for them, they're willing to sweat it out, stand the whole time, and just because they want to learn more about Him. He's enough. And then you, you know, come back to the church in America, and so many people see God like Israel saw Him. People so often just come to church just thinking about themselves. They come to a worship service seeking their own satisfaction. The music better be good. I'm out. I'm going over there. The message better be interesting or I'll just listen to this other guy online. People want to be entertained. They want God to serve them. And there's a very little sense of worship. I heard a pastor, uh, Francis Chan, say one time that someone came up to him after a worship service and they said to him, I don't really like the worship service today. And Francis said, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. <laughs> like Israel, so many Christians today, they never stop and gaze at the wonder and beauty of God. Instead, they just want to use them. So let me ask you, this morning, what do you want? Why are you here right now watching this service? Do you just want God? Is He enough? Or are you here because you want something else from Him? 
Here's some questions you can ask yourself to help deter determine if you find God useful instead of finding Him beautiful. Number one, in your prayers, how much time do you spend asking God for what you want compared to how much time do you spend gazing at His beauty and listening and conversing? Number two, how do you react when God doesn't give you what you're asking for? Are you resentful or content? People who use God say, God, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, so why aren't you giving me what I want? People who find God beautiful say, God, this is what I want. Honestly, I'm hurting over that I'm not getting this, but you know what, you're enough. And I'm okay if you never give it to me. Thirdly, at worship gatherings, does the sermon or the music, does it have to be world-class? Or does the simple presentation of the truths of the gospel do it for you? Are God's people, fourthly, and God's leaders, people for you to use? Are people for you to serve? Do you want something from people, or do you want something for people? People who find God beautiful want something for people. Fifthly, does your joy change based on the circumstances? And this is big for our quarantine season in the, in the time of COVID-19. In this quarantine and in this pandemic, are you keeping your gaze on God's beauty? And when things aren't going your way, does it wreck your mood? Does it wreck your joy? Because God's beauty never changes. So though our circumstances may fluctuate, He don't. So we should be able to maintain our joy. Maybe you listen to those questions and consider them and think, man, I don't know if I really find God beautiful. I kind of find Him useful. Hey, I have to. And if you are struggling to find Him beautiful, how do you start? To which I would say, you just gaze at Him. You search the depths of His power. You see the depths of His grace. You open this book and read about it. You talk to Him. Look at His love and His justice and His creativity and His holiness. And you just stare and you get lost in Him. See the beauty of God. And what we find in the text is that God is incredibly harsh towards people that don't love Him and instead just want to use Him. If we look ahead, fast forward to chapter 6, like for chapter 4 and 5, what we find is that the ark gets stolen by the Philistines. But in chapter 6, God brings the ark back to Israel. And when Israel finally gets the ark back two chapters later, again, we find they're casual with it. They're not reverent towards God. And we read in verses 19 to 20 in chapter 6 that God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is a place in Israel. These are the Israelites. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And whom shall he go up away from us? God strikes down instantly 70 men. They all die. Why? Because God hates when people use him and are casual with him. They just treat the ark like it's not that big a deal. They treat God like he's not that big a deal. We were meant as created beings to enter into worship, saying what the Israelites say here in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? You should walk in a worship service and say, who can stand before this holy God? I can't believe I get to worship Him. I can't believe I get to hear from Him. I can't believe I get to talk with Him. I can't believe I can gather with my other brothers and sisters and be with Him. And the only reason we can say who can, we can stand before this holy God is because of Jesus. Because Christ has reconciled us and, and bridged the gap between us sinful be beings and a holy God. We are reverent and holy. Uh, we are reverent towards His holiness. 
Now, jumping back to chapter 4, um, the Israelites, after they try and use God and bring the ark into battle with the Philistines, we find they get slaughtered. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot shoulders of Israel fell. 30,000 were killed because they tried to use God. To give you some context, this is the amount of death likely uh, equivalent to the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. A massive loss of life. Verse 11, and the consequences are that the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the Philistines take the ark from the Israelites. Losing the ark was as bad as it could get. It was the equivalent of losing God. Israel had lost the visible sign of God's presence. And included in the deaths are Hophni and Phinehas, which fulfilled God's prophecy of judgment against them, which we read about uh, a week or two ago. And after the massacre, the ba Battle of Ebenezer, a messenger named Benjamin, he sprints home to bring this horrible news to Israel. And he, he runs 22 miles. This brother runs a marathon to bring this news. And it says that he has dirt on his head, meaning Benjamin was full of grief and horror at what had just transpired. And he brings the news to Eli, the high priest. And uh, if you remember Eli, this is a blind, empty, religious old man who was also using God. And as soon as Eli hears this news the, about the death of his sons, and more importantly, the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, verse 18, we see Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died for the old man. The man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Just dies instantly. And then uh, Phineas's wife, Eli's daughter-in-law, she hears this news. She's so shocked, she goes into premature labor, labor. In verse 20, she gives birth to a son, and we find she doesn't even care about this child anymore. Verse 20, And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Imagine being so sad, so full of grief that your baby uh, child is placed on your chest for the first time and you don't even care. She has lost her husband and Israel has lost the ark. And she's so depressed. And her last act before she dies in childbirth is she names her son Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory of God has departed from Israel. Departed here means God exiled himself from Israel. He would rather lose the battle and be shamed than be a party to Israel using him. He was disgusted with her empty religion. And unfortunately, all throughout the evangelical world and all across churches in America, God is doing the same thing. He's still writing the, the word Ichabod over church doors today. He's still writing the glory of God has departed here in religious institutions today. Churches that have forsaken the gospel, the message of unearned forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, God writes Ichabod over their door. To churches that have enabled and justified racism, who have refused to listen to black pastors, or have affirmed silently or vocally the killing of unarmed black men like Ahmad Arbery, God writes Ichabod over their door. You have used me and I'm gone. Any church that leaves genuine worship and surrender to God, God writes Ichabod, I have departed. Chapter 4 teaches us very soberly that God is not a genie for us to man manipulate for our own pleasure or our own agenda. He is our creator who we bow down to and worship in reverential awe. We find in verse 74 that you can rebel by using God like the Israelites. Let's be wary of this warning in chapter 4. We also see you can lose God uh, through the Philistines in chapters 5 through 6. Let's look at these more obvious rebels for a moment, the Philistines. And in chapter 5, uh, we see the ark is taken by the Philistines from Ebenezer to the Philistines' capital, Ashdod. 
and they placed the ark beside their main god, Dagon. It's a pretty cool name for a god, Dagon. <laughs> if I were to make a god, I'd probably go with like something like Dagon. <laughs> Uh, in those days, um, when an enemy nation defeated uh, another nation, what they would do, the victorious nation, is they would take the god of their defeated rival and put it in their pantheon of gods. Because the, the victorious nation, they wouldn't want to offend the rival deity that they had just defeated. The Philistines were a pagan people, so they believed in a ton of gods. So for them, they would take this ark as a relic, put it in their temple, and uh, as a sign that they were victorious over this enemy nation's god. Having a nation's god in this ancient time was like capturing the king in a chessboard. You won. You got it. When Philistines took the ark, they figured we completely conquered Israel. Game over. That's why the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon in their temple. They believed their god, Dagon, who was the god of grain, was stronger and superior to Israel's god, Yahweh. They simply viewed Yahweh as one of the many plethora of gods of the nations around them. But they didn't understand who Yahweh is, the one and only true god of the universe. They missed the true identity and character of the Lord. And this is because they had preconceived ideas and notions about who God is. And so they saw Yahweh through their framework. And modern people, just like ancient people, do the same thing with God today. Many people have had a bad religious experience or were taught something growing up or perhaps misunderstood a biblical text at one point. And now they can't imagine turning to the God of the Bible because of some horrific presupposition they have about Him. You may be listening today and think, you Christians are interesting. I would never, though, follow your faith. You might have a lot of harsh views of the God of the Bible. You might ask us Christians something like, how can you believe in a God that is so cruel? You read this verse? How can you believe in a God that is so misogynistic? God hates women. So how am I, as a woman, can I worship Him? How can you believe in a God that is so tolerant of evil and suffering in this world? To which I would say, describe to me the God that you've rejected. Because maybe I don't believe in that God either. Maybe that's not actually the God of the Bible. Maybe you have a misconception of who God is. Like the Philistines. And he wants to show you the truth. And that's what God does here. He shows the Philistines who he really is. Not just one of many gods, but the one God. Next morning in chapter 5, verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. So the Philistines put the ark next to Dagon, and the next morning they find Dagon face down on the ground before the ark. That's weird. How did Dagon get there? That's never happened before. So they took Dagon, put him back up in his place. Come on, Dagon, you fell down. Let's get, put you back right there. And this is a god that needs to be placed back up by the people that worship him. This is not much of a god, is that? The next morning, we find in verse 4, Dagon has fallen again. But this time, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So we got like a trunk of a god. This time, Dagon was face down, hands and legs and head cut off. And again, he's bowed down before Yahweh's ark. And now we got a Humpty Dumpty situation. Like, come on, get back up, buddy. They didn't have Elmer's glue, so we got to figure out a way to put his stuff back on. Dagon is just getting crushed on his home turf. Yahweh is humiliating him. He's saying, Dagon, you're not even worthy of being next to the symbol that represents my glory. And in verse 7, the Philistines, you see, will even admit that Yahweh has outgotted their God. He's far more superior. And this section is intended to be humorous. Like the author is making fun of this fake God. 
Unlike a battered Dagon, Yahweh doesn't have to have someone come and set him up. And Yahweh wasn't made at Ikea, you know? It's like a 10-step process to put God up. God can fight the Philistines himself, he shows us. He doesn't need people to cheer him on. He can bring his ark back to his people on his own. He don't need any of us. You know, it's common thinking in ancient times that the gods depended, depended on their worshipers for survival. It was believed that the gods ate up the sacrifices of the people that worshipped them. And 1 Samuel 5 counters that thinking. God is completely independent of his people. God is not like Dagon, needing to be cuddled and protected and sustained by his worshipers. Yahweh is completely self-sufficient and completely sovereign. And for contemporary Christians, this is why we don't sing songs that celebrate how much God needs us. This is why we put the emphasis on Him, not on us. We need to focus on us less and more on Him. There are some contemporary Christian song lyrics that say things like, You thought of me above all. There are some lyrics that say things like, God, you didn't want heaven without us. So you brought heaven down. And I think there should be a fair amount of freedom for creative expression and songwriting, but we need to be careful not to imply that God needs us, or that He couldn't have imagined existence without us, or that He serves us first. No, He's completely other, completely sufficient and sovereign. And the Trinity was in fellowship and in love and in joy before the world was even created. There was no need for us. They chose to make us. God chose to create us, and He gives us the opportunity to know Him and worship Him. The God of the Bible doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. And that's good news. And we see that the power, we see the power of God in the rest of chapter 5. God strikes the Philistines with massive tumors and an infestation of rats. Commentators believe that this was the bubonic plague. And verses 11 through 12 tell us that this caused a deathly panic throughout the whole city. These tumors and, and rats. Can you imagine a panic that caused death? I'm imagining people trampling over each other. Perhaps dying from fear, suicide, I don't know. We can probably appreciate this scene more than ever right now. We've been struck with a plague similar like the Philistines have. And there's panic everywhere. God strikes the Philistines here with death, panic, rumors, rats. In verse 12, we see that the cry of the city was so loud it reached the heavens. So the Philistines kind of put two and two together and they realized that they think all of this is caused because they stole Israel's ark. And Yahweh is mad at them. So what they do is they send the, the ark back to Israel with interest paid on top. They include gold sculpted in the form of mice and tumors to admit defeat and serve as restitution for stealing the ark. I'm trying to imagine showing up to K Jewelers like, hey, can I have this gold formed in the, <laughs> in the form of a rat? <laughs> Hey, could you make this, uh, you know, I'm thinking like a tumor shape, you know, like it for my necklace. Um, yeah, a little different times then. But anyway, God got the, Israel, the ark back to Israel completely by himself with gold on top. Now, uh, as we think about this for us today, it'd be easy for us to call these Philistines primitive and unenlightened. In the Western world, it seems really silly to worship, you know, the deities like the God of grain. Especially when they're made of metal and stone and wood. But it wasn't silly to them. Because they lived in an agrarian society. And they believed, for example, that the, the god of storms, Baal, he slept with Ashtoreth, 
which was a, a female fertility goddess. And when these two mated, it would cause rain, which would produce crops, which would then provide food and life and security. And to be honest, today we do the same thing. We just depend on different gods. We call them different names. For them, it might be Baal and Dagon and Ashtaroth. For you, it might be the god of the retirement account. Or the god of the monthly paycheck. I rely on those things, those gods, to provide for me security and peace. And when they're gone, or when they're not, they're not providing, then my life is in chaos. Many of us think if only the God of our job and the God of our relationship will make together, then it will produce for us the perfect life in which I will completely thrive. And things like jobs and money and relationships or whatever it is for you, they're not necessarily bad. They're good gifts, but they're terrible gods. Mm -hmm. The gods we worship today are still deified as things that will provide for us the things we want most. And just like the Philistines here with Dagon, if you put these idols, these gifts, in your pantheon of gods, and you put them next to Yahweh, all of these idols and many gods will be revealed as insignificant, tiny, and helpless next to Him. No matter what it is you're worshiping, when it's next to Yahweh, eventually it will fall prostrate, broken to pieces, next to His glory. The Philistines teach us here that it's unwise to rely and worship lesser gods for fear that you would lose Him. We should avoid re rebelling by losing God. So what we've seen from the Israelites and the Philistines is that both are rebelling against God. The Israelites rebel by using God. The Philistines rebel by worshiping other gods who are worthless. And friends, if we're honest, we do the same thing. Both the Israelites and the Philistines do. We are prone to at least one area of rebellion here. Whatever it is, we're rebels just like the Philistines and Israelites. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has provided a way for all rebels to be made right with God. And it is the gospel path that I would encourage you to take this morning. And that's how we see the story conclude in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we see that 20 years have passed by. It's taken Israel a long time to repent and turn back to God. But here they go. They're ready to, to forsake these other idols, to stop using God. And so Samuel gathers Israel together and he calls for returning to the Lord. Verse 3 in chapter 7. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel here calls for what we would describe as repentance. Repentance. Repentance means to turn, to change. And this repentance includes three commands. Number one, put away other gods. Samuel says, you guys acknowledge your sin, own it for what it is, and turn from it. Don't make excuses, acknowledge it, and turn from it. And in verse 6, Israel does that. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. The first step of repentance is admitting we've been using you, God, or we've been worshiping lesser gods, God. Second command, direct your heart to the Lord. Notice God says here, heart. God doesn't just want your head. He's not looking for you just to acknowledge facts. He tells Israel here, I want your heart. He cares about your affections. They matter to Him. God wants them to see and enjoy His beauty. And then thirdly, serve Him alone. See, God has an either-or, all-or-nothing demand for His people. The other gods of the day, they weren't so picky. You could worship all of them if you wanted. <laughs> Yahweh says, all of me or none of me. <laughs> Yahweh is a jealous God. And He will not let His people cuddle with other rivals. 
God wants his people to repent, to turn, to change. And we see here, genuine repentance always moves beyond wet eyes and stirred feelings to idol crashing and cling only to God. And repentance, like we see here, isn't just a one-time act. It's a daily, continual pattern. The Christian should be repenting every day, turning to Jesus. This is something you and I should do today, like Israel does here in chapter 7. Ask things like this daily. God, I want to put away other gods. So ask, God, what are the idols I'm worshiping today that aren't you? We need to be putting away other gods every day. Secondly, we need to be directing our heart to the Lord every day, asking God, how is my delight in you today? Asking ourselves, how is my delight in God? And thirdly, we need to serve Him alone and commit to that every day. How am I giving my life to serve Him today? Repentance is a daily, continual pattern for the Christian by putting away other gods, directing our heart to the Lord, and serving Him alone. And the scene ends as Samuel prays for Israel and intercedes for them. And he sacrifices a lamb as an offering, as an atonement for Israel's decades of rebellion. And as Israel is repenting, as Samuel is interceding, something bad happens. Verse 10, as Samuel is offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. So the Philistines are advancing. They're ready to pounce. With the Israelites distracted in their repentance, they're helpless. And the Philistines want to wipe out Israel. And Israel's condition is admittedly pretty pathetic. They're helpless. But what we see here in chapter 7 and in chapter 4, that in chapter 4, when the Israelites rely on their own strength, and they have this massive army of more than 30,000 people, it led to their slaughter. But in chapter 7, when Israel is helpless and dependent on God and praying to Him as their only weapon, they're victorious. Verse 10, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. The Lord intercedes and thunders against the enemies of God and saves His people. And after Israel is saved, the scene ends here. Samuel does something interesting. To commemorate God's mighty inter intervention on behalf of his people, verse 12, Samuel takes a stone and sets it up, kind of like this, between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. The word Ebenezer in Hebrew means stone of help. And the point of this is Samuel knew that humans are a forgetful people. We don't just forget our car keys and our wallet. We oftentimes lose our trust and forget about our ever-faithful God. And so Samuel, he set up this Ebenezer, which was this visible memorial of a rock that you could walk by and see to help people remember, not just for a few days, but for years and for decades and for generations, how God came to rescue his people at Ebenezer against the enemies of Philistines. And that God saved them when they humbled themselves before him. They were vulnerable with their enemies approaching. They did not deserve God's rescue, having been chronically unfaithful. And yet in his gracious commitment to his covenant people, God intervened with a thunder to defeat their enemies. And of course, this would not be the end of Israel's story. We'll see in 1 Samuel and the rest of the Bible that many more dangers and toils and snares were to come against them. Samuel raising this stone of help, this Ebenezer, was in no way a declaration that the final victory had been won. It was a declaration that up to that point, God had proven faithful and had helped them. That's why he says, till now the Lord has helped us. And because God's people were not yet out of the woods, this Ebenezer would have a part to play in reminding the nation to keep the faith in the challenges in the days ahead. And so it is with us today. Our stories are not yet over. And we are not yet out of the woods. Many more threats await us and will assault our faith. 
And we know our hearts are helpless apart from God's grace. We are so prone to wander from Him. Yet as we live in this tension that we call the present, with so much of the future that's ahead of us uncertain, we look to the past because we know who our God has shown Himself to be. We look at the tiny Ebenezer's in our lives, the small memories where God has shown Himself faithful and kind. But a thousand years after this event in 1 Samuel, God will reveal the mountain peak of His redeeming love, the true Ebenezer we call Calvary. The cross is our visible Ebenezer, where we can walk by, look, and say, till now, the Lord has helped us. We, like Israel, stood helpless as our worst enemies, sin and death, stood at the gate, ready to destroy us. But at the cross, Jesus intervened. At the cross, Jesus thundered against our enemies, wiping them out, saving us from destruction. At the new Ebenezer, Calvary, we can look and see a visible sign of God's faithfulness to us, that He saved us when we were at our worst, and He'll surely carry us through now. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God has already been faithful against our greatest enemies, will He be, not be faithful in these much lesser trials? So friends, let's look to our Ebenezer, the cross of Jesus Christ, as the mark of God's covenant faithfulness to us. As we close, this is what hymn writer Robert Robinson meant in his classic hymn in the 18th century, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. You may have heard this hymn. Robert Robinson was a former gang member. He grew up poor without a dad, and he was an obvious rebel, always in trouble, hanging out with the wrong crowd, until one day, upon the preaching of George Whitfield, the gospel changed him. And he gave his life to serve King Jesus. And you hear his story in his hymn. We're going to sing it in a moment. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Robinson knew the cross is our true Ebenezer. So friends, let's remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. Let's trust him with our future that's uncertain and full of trials. Let's worship him here in the present. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.